This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Longtime listeners of the Insecurities Podcast know that PLI's SEC Institute, or the SECI, offers up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative programs and workshops, all an important part of PLI's mission to keep attorneys, accountants, and other professionals ever current, ever prepared, and ever aware. Every quarter, the SECI puts out a helpful newsletter that discusses current SEC focus areas, along with new rules and proposals, new accounting standards and proposals from the FASB and PCAOB auditing standard and inspection developments. We're going to discuss several hot topics in the SECI's latest quarterly newsletter with one of our favorite guests, the SECI's own George Wilson, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you as always, Chris. I I guess I I have a question for you right out of the gate. Hit me. Does this count as our summer of accounting? Is this another episode in, in our summer school? It is. This, I think this is the culmination of a lot of hard work, a lot of homework on behalf of our listeners, maybe some professorial musings that have happened along the summer <laughs> from the accounting nerds we've had on the show. But yes, I'm counting this as kind of the capstone project of our, of our accounting summer school that we've, you've all let us indulge you with over the past few weeks. I, I love it. We couldn't have a, a better way to sort of cap our summer of accounting. Chris, kudos to you, man. It's been a great summer. I know I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. I wish I wish summer could go on forever, Kurt, because then we would have an accounting summer school forever. But with Labor Day and, and the advent of autumn here, I think we'll, we'll move on and, and get back to some of our regular <laughs> programming as well. All right. That sounds good. You know, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about some of the hot topics in the September 2022 SECI quarterly newsletter. The newsletter is going to be coming out any day, but we're going to give our listeners a little bit of a preview. We'll talk about things like climate-related disclosures, whistleblowers, and some changes at the Financial Accounting Standards Board, affectionately known as FASB, and the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which by now you all should know is the PCAOB. There's a lot to cover in this installment of the SECI's quarterly newsletter, but there always is. I highly recommend you subscribe if you haven't already. The easiest way to find the sign up, just Google SECI newsletter and it'll be the very first hit in the queue. Anyway, as always, we have our very good friend George Wilson on the show today to walk us through some of the hot topics in the SECI quarterly newsletter. George is an absolute legend and we're excited to have him back (laughs) on the program. Chris, why don't you give us a quick rundown on George? Kurt, I'm glad the rotational schedule has me doing George's bio because 
we have covered it so many times to date that we don't really need to run down all of the accolades and great things that George does. For those who don't know, George Wilson is a director of the SEC Institute at PLI. As Kurt talked about up top, the SEC Institute is really focused on those issues of SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting. Tons of good content out there for those attorneys who practice in the SEC reporting space and for those accountants like me who practice in putting those numbers together in the right way. If you want to know more about the SECI or the SEC Institute, you can always go to pli.edu slash programs slash SECI. As discussed, this is George's sixth guest appearance. He's part of the Sixth Timers Club. George, the only member. A, that's right. You have a strong lead over other repeat guests. I think we have a couple of twos, twos out there, but six is definitely, <laughs> definitely leading the pack. You guys can reference episodes 7, 19, 32, 45 and 60. You see, we get him on twice a year here. And in episode 60, back in February of this year, George, we talked about writing a screenplay for a summer blockbuster, Goodwill Accounting. Uh, George, how, how are the developments there? Have we moved on to blocking and, and casting, or are we still in the development phase? Well, I've got the first draft of the script all put together. Excellent. I think we're going to be ready to make our pitch. I'm trying to write the five-minute pitch. I'm trying mm -hmm. to think about which studios we should go to. That's right. I, I'm kind of thinking Netflix because they've done a lot of financial stuff. That's I think right. it's going to be exactly as strong as the WeWork special show. <laughs> Maybe better than Billy. No. <laughs> So, we'll have to see if we can get but, Jared Leto to play a key character for us. Oh, and then as we, as we talked about, or as we will talk about in a few moments, the FASB pulled the rug out from underneath us with the Goodwill Project. So That's we right. might need to sort of revamp the script a little bit. But I've got the treatment. <laughs> I've got the treatment. Excellent. <laughs> Great. Well, George, we are excited to have you with us. Thanks, thanks again for coming back on the show. Oh, guys, it is always a privilege and an absolute delight to be able to do this with you two. And I have to say, I have enjoyed the summer school accounting programs as much as anybody out there. And I, I'm going to mention that the old accounting professor in me, because as an accounting professor with 12 years time, it seemed like you needed a final exam. So I've written some questions that we can blend in after we talk a little bit about stocks. <laughs> no, Kurt, that is not the lighting. It is literally me sweating as, as we get ready for this quiz here. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and jump into some of this. And, and absolutely, we're going to weave in some of your quiz questions for us, George. Just a quick roadmap for, for the listeners out there. We're going to cover a few hot topics, as I mentioned, picking up on a theme from our summer accounting school. We're going to talk a little bit about socks turning 20. We're going to talk about some developments over at the SEC that aren't necessarily accounting related. We'll talk about some new commissioners. We will talk about the climate-related disclosure rule proposal, whistleblowers, and then we're going to get into some of those changes George mentioned at FASB, some developments at the PCAOB, and that should round out our show. So a great one. Why don't we go ahead and jump in with Socks Turning 20? 
Yes, Kurt, the 20th birthday of socks came this summer. And fortunately for our listeners, if not unfortunately for everyone, is most folks have gone out and done some programming around this, including the SEC. You saw speeches from Chair Gensler about uh, the 20th anniversary of socks, as well as some other discussion from the commission. I think our accounting summer school captured a lot of the nuts and bolts. Our discussion with Jim Park a few episodes ago really talked about socks in detail. And then we kind of rolled through a lot of the auditing and, and PCAOB related issues and, uh, and some of our other discussions. But by no means is it the only programming out there, especially when we look at the Practicing Law Institute. George, I know PLI has three one-hour briefings coming up focused on those various provisions of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, including auditing and accounting impacts, changes in governance and disclosure, and securities markets and related provisions. Each of these briefings will have you and Bob Locks of the SEC Institute at PLI, but also... Gary Brown of Nelson Mullins, and a special guest in Julie Bell Lindsay of the Center for Audit Quality. George, talk to us a bit about these briefings and how each of the titles actually includes the tagline that I love, dot, 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 and a look forward. That is really the overall goal of all three of these briefings, Chris. You know, everybody's been talking about socks, and, and rightly so, 20 years afterwards. It's interesting to see what's happened. And think about the risks that similar or the same things could happen again. Have we really built the structures? And, and can you even prevent the kind of things that happened in this world? So we're going to do three separate briefings. The first one is about accounting and auditing impacts. And that's the one where Julie Bell Lindsay, the director of the Center for Audit Quality, will be there. And we'll take a look at auditing standards and the impact and the PCAOB and the inspection program. And as you mentioned, Chair Gensler has given a couple of speeches focused on SOX developments. And in one of those speeches, he talked about how when he was serving on the staff of Senator Sarbanes, the idea of auditing standards being set by the PCAOB was to get a pretty good fresh start and when they let the PCAOB kind of have, quote, interim standards that were based on the AICPA standards, that was designed to be kind of short term. And here we are 20 years later with a lot of those interim standards still in place. So that's a big focus. More about that when we talk about the PCAOB stuff. But it's the look forward part, what things will probably happen in the future. The second one is governance. And boy, when you look at the way the SEC's cybersecurity proposal and the climate-related disclosures proposals focus on governance disclosures, I think we're going to see that as an evolving issue. And the last one is securities markets provisions. And there's obviously a lot of rulemaking going on at the SEC right now about market structure, transactional support, stuff like that, is payment for order flow. I love when you guys talk about payment for order flow, PFOV. PFOV. <laughs> Gotta love another acronym like that. Mm -hmm. And I am still waiting for that dictionary of acronyms to show up in the show notes <laughs> at some point. Keeping us future. accountable to it, George, we promise. No, I, I, I just, if it was my job, it would take forever. Mm -hmm. But there's so much going on. So we're really excited about these three briefings because, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about what the law did and what it changed, but we really want to talk about the impacts and look forward because I think it will set directions. And I think it's been a reminder for a lot of people. So going to be fun. It's going to be fun. These are always fun. And these one hour briefings, they're just quick to the point. 
always delightful to do. And before we jump onto some of those questions you've got about the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, George, when can PLI members expect to, to be able to get in touch with those, those one-hour briefings? Oh, they're scheduled in October. Great. We're, we're actually going to have the first two on the same day, and that's mid-October, and then the last one's a little later on. Great. We'll look forward yeah. to it. All right, well, George, do you want to hit us with a couple of these socks questions? I know Chris is anxiously awaiting. All right, so yeah, I thought it would be kind of fun. And like I said, this is the final exam. But don't worry, guys, it's totally open book. So you're ready. Oh, you can totally use your materials here, which includes Google, so you can Google these. But I thought it'd be kind of fun, especially with socks as a theme, mm -hmm. to, to toss a few ideas out. And, you know, there are always a lot of interesting things about the act that people aren't always familiar with. So here's the first question. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act empowers the PCAOB to levy fines in its enforcement actions. What happens with the money that the PCAOB collects in its enforcement cases? And I'll give you three three options. <laughs> Thank you One, for the multiple choice, because the fill in the blank uh, wouldn't have gone well. <laughs> here we go. It's forwarded to the SEC for distribution and fair funds distributions. Two, it's used to fund PCAOB operations. Or three, it's used to fund accounting scholarships. And then there's no wrong. You can so, just take your best shot. I mean, so I know I know this one from past experience in wow. PCAOB enforcement matters. But I don't know, Chris. Do you want to do you want to venture a guess? I, I don't want to brag and say that I haven't dealt with a PCAOB enforcement matter as an accountant, <laughs> so I don't know this. I'm going to take a swing at, I'm going to be altruistic and go with number three, utilize for accounting scholarships. You yeah, are exactly that, That's right. my answer. <laughs> All right. Excellent. You, you are spot on. When I, when I first read the act, when I sat down and read through everything and I saw that was wired into the statute, I just laughed out loud. Because yeah. now you've got bad accountants helping train good accountants. That you got it. I knew. I knew. I knew the second answer wouldn't be right because they'd be incentivized, right, for larger, yeah. larger fines to fund their operations. But you know, always trying to. Well, I forget what the CBO phrase is for acts like this, but you know, they're self-funded, and that yeah, the bad accountants are right. then are then supporting the future of accounting with with some good scholarship yeah. and education. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's the same kind of thing with the SEC's yep. fines and levies. They actually go to the government fund. The SEC can't use those. But in, in each year, and this year, the SEC actually funded 250 scholarships of $10,000 each. Generally, they're for postgraduate work. But when you think about the challenge the accounting profession faces to attract new people, yeah, it's a pretty neat deal. It's a pretty mm -hmm. neat deal. So I've always I, liked I, that. I, and you know, it's interesting. The staff, some of the staff at the PCAOB don't even know that that's what happens that's with right. the money they get. Because uh, it's not well publicized. It's no. not really well publicized. But I think that's I, I a guess, neat thing about the organization. I, I've got a sort of good news, bad news point then, I guess, George. I read in Accounting Today recently that the, the PCAOB is on pace for its highest ever 
enforcement sanctions in 2022. So I don't know, bad in a sense, maybe that, that okay. you need that, wait, but, okay. but wait. good if you need a scholarship. Yeah, students, go to the website and apply today. <laughs> you can do that. Kurt, Kurt, though, first, you read accounting today. I'm well, really it was about excited. enforcement. I don't want to get too, you know, let's not oh, get too he's, excited. He's only, on, he's only in that one column of accounting today. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's yeah. But no, I think it's just an interesting facet of how the organization mm. works. Love it. All right, so here's number two. Does the Sarbanes-Oxley Act require companies to have a code of ethics for CEOs, CFOs, and CAOs? I assume there's only two choices here. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 multiple <laughs> choices. Yeah, that's right. I will go with maybe. No. <laughs> I'm going to say no. I'm going to take yeah. a stand and say it does not. I think it's no. For, for those individuals, I do think that you have to have some kind of code of ethics, but specific for the C-suite, I, I don't know about that. George, what's the answer? The answer to that question is, in fact, no. Two for two. But the, the answer to that question actually hinges on the fact that the SEC does not have the legislative or the statutory ability to affect governance requirements. Mm. The SEC can't set governance requirements. They can only set disclosure requirements. So they do require that you disclose what, and this is from Sox, yeah. whether or not you have a code of ethics that applies to your CEO, CFO, and CAO. You have to disclose whether you have one. And, and I am, I've been watching since 2002 for a company that says something like, we don't bother with a code of ethics for our senior <laughs> finance people. We found that it slowed down our business processes and affected profits negatively. <laughs> That'd be um, a good one. All right, so here is the next one. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act Empowered, by the way, you guys are doing wonderfully so far. We're doing great. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act empowers the SEC with oversight over the PCAOB's budget. Every year, the PCAOB presents a budget, and the SEC has to approve or disprove mm -hmm. the budget. Each year after SEC approval, the PCAOB levies an assessment on public companies based on their market cap to fund its operation. So they take the as-approved budget, allocate it to each company, public company, and they have to pay that. And in fact, you probably know as an auditor, Chris, even though you're not actually out in the field auditing right mm -hmm. now, that if a company hasn't paid their PCAOB assessment, auditors cannot opine because that's viewed as an independence issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's that's the enforcement for collection process for the yeah. PCAOB. But here's the sec here's the question. Do accounting firms pay an assessment also? I, I would say yes. I feel like they have to have some some flesh in the game, but I don't know, Chris. You, I'm, you... I'm going to say yes as well. It, it rings a bell that that's the truth, but I couldn't tell you what the metric is for why that happens. No, they do not. Oh, oh wow, Kurt, we swung and we not. missed. They do not pay it. No, and I mean that's the idea. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> when we when we do polling questions in our workshop. We always try to build questions to focus on the more complex or frequently missed issues. And this is one of them. This is mm -hmm. one of them. So we're all here to learn. That's the That's right. That's good. Exam. Chris, we should have hedged. All right. Next time I, I go, yes, you go. No. All right. That's right. All right. So here's the last one. Last question. Does the Sarbanes-Oxley Act empower the SEC to oversee the FASB's budget? I'm going to say no. Kurt, feel free to yeah. hedge. No, my, my guess is is no, just because I, 
I think it's a, a separate organization. It's not like an NRSRO or a you know non-governmental regulator regulator like the PCAOB. George, and the answer is no. Yes. So the FASB has a much higher level of independence in that regard. Mm -hmm. Although I would say I do believe the office of the chief accountant visits with them. Perhaps vehemently. Sometimes we'll <laughs> sure, there's some discussion around those issues, right? Sure, there is some discussion about what they do, yeah. George, that is awesome. Thank you so much for some great trivia questions on Sarbanes-Oxley. And Kurt, I want to be the first to let you know that you have been given a provisional a CPA accreditation because you have passed George's <laughs> quiz with a score of 75%, which, as everyone knows, is the passing score of any of the sections of the CPA exam. So, Kurt, welcome to the club. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be looking for my, my certificate with some gold leaf on it. I know it's in the mail. All right, let's segue and talk about some of the recent developments at the commission before we get into some of the, you know, the FASB and the PCAOB stuff. The first thing that I think we should discuss, and of course, this is in the quarterly newsletter, is the fact that we now have two new commissioners at the SEC. They were sworn in in July, so just a few weeks ago. They are, of course, Commissioner uh, Jaime Lizarraga and Mark Uyeda. And they have sort of staggered terms, which is what you expect. So they'll both be around for, for a couple of years. Commissioner Lizarraga comes from the Hill, where he has served as a senior advisor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He's had a number of other leg affairs jobs on the Hill, including on the staff of the House Financial Services Committee. Commissioner Uyeda has served on the staff of the SEC since 2006. He's been in several commissioner's offices, including former Chair Jay Clayton. He was in Michael Pivovar's office. He was also counsel to Commissioner Paul Atkins. So he's been at the SEC for a long time. George, I'd be interested to hear if you have any reactions or takes on, you know, sort of what these two new commissioners bring to the SEC or, or whether it's going to change the dynamic over there. Oh, I, I can be hopeful in some regards. Both of the new commissioners bring extensive public service to their roles. Commissioner Lizarraga <clears throat> has been in public service over 30 years and has worked, you know, when you think back 30 years, that's 10 years before the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, for goodness sakes, and actually has worked with financial markets and related committees on the Hill for, for many, many years. So hopefully he'll bring good depth of experience. And then Commissioner Uyeda, He's been on the staff, I th did you say since 2006, Kurt? I mean, yeah, that's yeah. shortly after Sox. Right. So he's been there through different commissions, different commissioners, different sort of perspectives. And, and as everybody knows, the commission has been very political in recent years. And, and two of the proposals, or one proposal and one final rule that we discuss in the newsletter are good examples of that where the current commission has basically unwound rules that the prior commission put in place. And the proxy advisory rule is an interesting example of that. Different perspectives. I, I would hope that with that depth of experience, the commissioners can sort of help develop a longer-term perspective. But given the polarization in the District of Columbia, which you guys experience pretty directly, I expect, 
But the, the thing I like about both these appointments is they bring significant experience. And while they may have different perspectives, I think they'll be able to articulate their perspectives. And, and that's already happened in a couple of their public remarks. Neither of them writes as enjoyably and dramatically as Commissioner Peirce. <laughs> uh, but I, I think we'll see good perspectives. And, and the more discourse and the more discussion we have about this kind of rulemaking, the better. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll find right. their voice, George. Yeah. As they exactly write more. Right. Kurt, how yeah, does the defense bar feel about the new commissioners? Any reaction from your colleagues or in some of those publications or just kind of hurry up and wait to see where things go? I mean, I think the reaction has been fairly muted. As George notes, they both have a, a tremendous amount of experience. They they know the space. They know the players. They've both been on the Hill. I, I didn't mention, mention Commissioner Uyeda actually was on detail from the SEC to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. So both of both of these individuals know sort of the folks in the building at the SEC and the folks on the Hill. You know, I, I don't I don't know the extent to which that is helpful. I don't know whether or not that impacts things in terms of the polarization that George was talking about. But I think broadly the defense bar sort of feels like, well, it, it you've got a three two. So the chair is still going to mostly be able to pursue his agenda, to, to push through the rules that he wants to get through. And, you know, to George's point, maybe this just means the two, you know, Commissioner Peirce and Commissioner Uyeda are, are able to, uh, to shape some of those rulemaking proposals um, rather than scuttle them. And, and that's important, too, especially if you're taking a long view, like George said, we want to have in place rules that are going to that are going to endure. So I, I don't know, Chris, the, the defense bar, I think the reaction has kind of been, well, Chair Gensler is going to continue to pursue his agenda and these don't mm-hmm. really impact his ability. I think the one thing I find heartening really about the entire commission right now is while it is political and the perspectives are very different, all five of the members seem to be very, very focused on investor protection. Mm-hmm and capital formation. And the conflict between those parts of the mission is pretty clear in their perspectives. But it's mission-focused, and that's the part I like. I agree with that. All right, so I guess time will tell, you know, what what the the legacy or the work of these two new commissioners will look like. But good to note that they are out there and that the commission is now back at full strength with five commissioners in their chairs. Something else that's going on over at the SEC, we've we've talked about it here on the program. We've all read a lot about it, I'm sure, but that is a, a rule proposal that would require public companies to disclose certain climate-related issues. Uh, We're talking about things like risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on companies' business, their results of operations or financial condition. They also have to disclose certain climate-related risks involving greenhouse gas emissions. That one has been, I think, particularly interesting, at least in terms of the public debate. And so what we're seeing now is loads of comment letters are starting to pour into the commission, commenting on various aspects of this proposed rule. You know, George, the newsletter picks up on that a little bit. I'd be curious to know kind of what you're picking up from the comment letters that are coming in. Are there any particular trends or themes that you see as noteworthy? That's a great question, Kurt. 
And the answer is, wow. I mean, there are over <laughs> 14,000 comet letters. And when you sort through them all, there are a bunch of them that are form letters that, you know, people send in. And a vast majority of those are from people who essentially support the proposal. There's one letter, I think, that's, oh gosh, hundreds and hundreds of pages long. There's one letter that's actually signed by multiple organizations. So it's all over the map. But when you go through and you sort of sift and look at all the different letters, and a number of different organizations have done this, so there's a lot published out there about it. There, there are about a thousand letters that have meaningful comments from hmm. trade organizations, companies, other non-governmental organizations, accounting firms, law firms. And those letters, I would say, generally you find support doing something mm -hmm. uh, with climate-related disclosures. Although I think the related costs, particularly from corp companies and the organizations that support companies, like the Chamber of Commerce, are very much focused on the costs, particularly to provide information about greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the, the staff makes a really neat point that if you look at the, uh, or, or the proposed rule makes a really neat point from the staff, if you look at the proposed rule and you look at the S&P 500, a vast majority of them all already disclose greenhouse gas emission data. And many of those companies already have an attest report from an expert or their independent accountants. So this isn't like, oh my gosh, nobody's ever done this before kind of stuff. There's clear paths to follow. But for smaller organizations, smaller reporting companies, and particularly if you think about EGCs going public, it's pretty dramatically costly. So a lot of the comment letters focus on those issues. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you find any clear yes or no answers in the comment letters you find. And some of them are actually, particularly those written by the accounting firms, are pretty strong proponents of doing something here. So I don't know if that's vague enough to say <laughs> you will find information to support anything you want in the comment letters. But if you sift through the thousand that are basically meaningful, and you can find those, I'll look for the comment letters from large law firms, look for the comment letters from large companies. And you'll find, I think, in general support to do something, but to try to make it reasonable and not as costly. I know there are several letters that just say, don't do anything, let the market decide. The market's already deciding for the S&P 500 that those yeah. disclosures are important. And, you know, for people who have never looked at one of these kinds of disclosures, particularly for greenhouse gases, go look at Coca-Cola's ESG report, and you'll see they actually have greenhouse gas disclosures with an attestation report from their auditor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, go look, there's a company, it's a software company, they do, it's a service bureau company for banks, Jack Henry. They're early on in the process. And so they haven't actually gotten to the point where they're disclosing greenhouse gas numbers. But you can see, and they talk, discuss in their, their ESG report, that they're building to that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think my, my inclination comes through there that I think something needs to happen here so that we become conscious of those kinds of things. But a lot of the letters suggest more moderation. 
Interesting. So, uh, that's it's all over the map, but look for the thousand letters that actually have some substance. Hmm. It's uh, it's a lot to weed through, actually. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've been I've been saying, and you know, I've said this in a couple of interviews that I, I really expected to see a final rule, you know, in the climate related disclosures before the end of the year. To me, it seemed like something that could potentially slow that down was having two new commissioners that have to, you know, get to understand better the the rulemaking proposal to get through the comment letters to talk with various constituents. It just seems like maybe it's going to be a heavy lift to get this done. But I don't know, George, what does what your crystal ball tell you? Are we going to see a final rule in 2022? I think that I'm going to say 80-20 that we'll see a final rule. You heard it here first, folks. George Wilson <laughs> unequivocally predicts that there's a, a final rule by the end of the year. Yeah, uh, I, no, I, I, I think it's an important enough issue, and I think mm-hmm. the comment letters are in general supportive enough that yeah. they will adapt. And, you know, the staff generally reads the comment letters. Well, they always read the comment letters, but they generally react to the comment mm-hmm. letters as they refine their proposal. Yeah. And, you know, it's been sort of quiet in the in the carp fin rulemaking world, so I think that, and then the cybersecurity proposal Mm-hmm. are both in process in the background yeah. there somewhere. Yeah. Well, we'll see. In the meantime, I, I know that PLI and the SECI have a number of resources available for folks who are trying to understand the rulemaking proposal or, or just what this disclosure regime might look like. Any any particular resources that you would want to flag, George, for our listeners? Oh, I'll, I'll flag two. One is, the, <laughs> a, I don't want to say a labor of love, but something I enjoyed, which was writing 10 blog posts that take the proposed rule and break it down into individual, I don't want to say bite-sized pieces, but individual, at least hopefully digestible pieces. Definitely. And those were really interesting to do to explore what the, the nitty gritty details of the rule. And I have to say, if you read those, you'll find most of the governance related disclosures are not that onerous. Mm -hmm. There's one that's really interesting, which is to disclose whether any board members have climate expertise without really defining Defining what you mean by climate (laughs) expertise. But whatever it is, you have to describe what it is for Mm -hmm. those board members who apparently have it. For my entire Um, life, George, I have experienced the climate. Does that make me a climate expert? We'll have to see. Yeah, I know. I've got a great tan from being out in the climate. It's been a long summer, yeah. I'm my position at that point. And then I can't resist getting a little accounting geeky here. Mm -hmm. The accounting proposed disclosures, and there's a really interesting philosophical area underneath these to discuss, and that is should should the SEC require incremental financial statement disclosures, or should that be left to the FASB? And the SEC has not promulgated new financial statement disclosures in many, many years. Mm -hmm. They've they've relied on the FASB to do that, but the proposed rule actually has a new chapter in Regulation SX that would require disclosure about climate-related impacts and interestingly sets a materiality threshold of 1%. 
Wow. So if you have like a major climate related event that creates expenses, Mm-hmm. And those expenses are over 1% of the line item that contains them. You would have to make separate disclosure of that in a note to the financial statements. And the 1% disclosure threshold is interesting. Is mm-hmm. the, yeah. the right way to say it. And from a systems perspective, I mean, if you think about most large companies who are using a big ERP system to track something and have appropriate controls over something at a 1% level that, is yeah. not going to be an easy task. Mm-hmm. So we'll save that. Lot. Maybe we'll have a, a, a bonus episode, George, where we fight about what materiality really means. And if oh. and if 1% is the right number or not. If you oh, figure you, it out, let me know. Yeah, Kurt, <laughs> Kurt has a few clients who'd like to hear that uh, discussion. I, I, my, my, favorite, my favorite issue in the definition of materiality is that it's what an average prudent investor are reasonably to be in front. Mm-hmm. I have been looking, I've been holding my lantern like Diogenes, <laughs> searching for an average prudent, prudent investor, investor yeah. since 1975, and I'm still looking, still looking. That's so funny. But I think there are some investors who would think 1%, I want to know about it, and mm-hmm. others who would say 1%, who cares? You got it. If you read the SEC's climate related comment letters, which aren't mentioned anywhere in the newsletter, obviously, but we are actually doing a one-hour briefing about them next month. There are instances, there was a great letter to Meta, the Facebook company, Mm. where Meta talked about a climate-related event, and the SEC actually responded and said, please quantify that, Hmm. and kind of focused in on that smaller amount. It was really interesting. Interesting. Um, so there's a lot happening there. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes. We also did a series of one-hour briefings. We did four one-hour briefings about the proposal, too. Chris, we just brought up FASB. I mean, just organically it happened. It's, so you know, I, I wonder. Kurt, it underpins so much of the accounting and legal landscape. It's hard to avoid those standard setters up there in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear more about that. In late June, the FASB, that's the Financial Accounting Standards Board, published its 2021 Agenda Consultation Report, which is included in this SECI quarterly newsletter. That report summarizes the comments and meetings held with stakeholders and other interested parties on where the FASB should focus its time. Not surprisingly, the FASB takes some time in its report to note that of the seven top priorities identified by investors in this process, they already have projects on their technical or research agenda related to each. Kudos to our friends over at the FASB for seeing the ball coming in before they swing the bat. George, I know you've spent a lot of time with the agenda consultation report from FASB. What do you make of their results and their findings, and where do you see FASB spending most of its time going forward? Chris, that is a great question. And I have to say, when they came through with the final summary of actions taken for the agenda, I was surprised. There were some things that I hoped would be there but didn't think would be there, and some things that they took off the agenda Mm -hmm. that I was disappointed that they removed from the agenda. Now, a couple of things that are happening currently, digital assets, cryptocurrency, stuff like that, everybody's been struggling with, everybody who holds those has been struggling with how to account for that. And 
people have sort of shoehorned it, I would say, into the accounting model for indefinite lived intangible assets, which to me is like, really? Because you can go <laughs> trade it on an exchange? That's yeah. really not an indefinite lived intangible asset like a nuclear power plant license, which really mm. wouldn't be indefinite lived, but like a radio station license. And I think the accounting results there don't make a lot of sense. And if you want to see a place where they don't make a lot of sense, check out MicroStrategy's most recent reports. They went big into cryptocurrency and it went south on them pretty quickly. But the reporting is really just, I don't think it's timely and reliable and relevant for investors when you do that. So I'm glad that that's one of the things in the Agenda Consultation Project that they actually put on the agenda. And they had avoided that historically, and I think that that was frustrating to a lot of people. Another project that I think blossomed out of the SEC's climate-related disclosure proposal is accounting for environmental credit programs. You know, <clears throat> there are, there's a lot of discussion in the proposed rule about how to account for offsets and other environmental credits, and the, 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 the guidance there is not real clear. Yeah. So I, I think that's really neat that they've done that. On the other side of the equation, as an old school person who remembers when we used to amortize goodwill, mm -hmm. and who I think deep in my accounting brain does not believe that goodwill really does last forever, I was surprised that they took the project to consider subsequent accounting for goodwill off the agenda. Yeah. And, and surprised, I would I would say a little disappointed because I think mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you go back to the business combination standard setting, not amortizing goodwill really turned out to be sort of a compromise in the standard setting process to get rid of an old accounting method called pooling accounting. And if you still remember pooling accounting, I can put you in touch with a support group that can help you with those sort of bad <laughs> memories. <laughs> The idea there was pooling, there was no goodwill without going into a lot of even more wonky stuff. Yep. So not amortizing goodwill became kind of a compromise. Um, but <clears throat> I think the intent was always to go back to amortizing it. Now, that we'd have a significant divergence from IFRS if Forest, we did yeah. that. So there's a lot of pros and cons there. Mm -hmm. The one thing I was really hoping they'd clean up is accounting for asset acquisitions, where you acquire a pool of assets, but it's not a business. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of inconsistencies there. Yeah. In particular, IPR&D. IPR&D, you capitalize in a business combination, but you don't in an asset acquisition. Mm -hmm. And I think that results in less relevant information mm -hmm. for a user of that financial statement information. So it'd be nice to see something better there. But overall, I think it was a very positive move. Interestingly, if you go back to earlier in the year, the chief accountant, acting chief accountant, Paul Munter, sent a letter or, or actually made a statement about the FASB's process and agenda. And I think you can see some of the impact of that and that statement on the agenda. But I think the agenda is more focused. I think it's more manageable. So I think we'll see more discrete and more relevant standard setting.
I hope that that's the outcome. And, and George, as, as we talk about this report, just to give you some facts and figures here, represents the input of over 200 meetings and over 522 mm-hmm. responses to yeah. the FASB. Now, that pales in comparison to the 14,000 comment letters the SEC has received related to ESG. But, you know, the similar amount of information that has to be put together, the buy-in from stakeholders, I think, is always an important undercurrent for any of these agendas as they're developed at the commission, at, at PCAOB, or, or FASB as well. Definitely. Speaking of the PCAOB and Kurt, again, that is not Peekaboo. That is the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. I, I know that you've never called it that, but I'm going to keep reminding it. you. I, I know. I know. <laughs> We've agreed. The news, the quarterly newsletter from, from the SEC Institute covers two interesting facets of the current landscape for today's PCAOB. The first, George, you touched on a little bit earlier in today's episode about interim auditing standards. What's the deal with 20-year-old interim standards, George? How did this all come about? Well, you know, way back when the PCAOB was formed by the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and in theory, the PCAOB was designed to be sort of parallel with the FASB, the FASB setting accounting standards and the PCAOB setting auditing standards. Way back in those early days, the idea was, it's not going to be possible for this new board to have enough time to write a whole set of auditing standards from scratch and do that in an orderly fashion. So they allowed the PCAOB to actually use the AICPA's auditing standards as, quote, interim standards. And fascinatingly enough, if you go way back in history there, there were actually copyright issues there. (laughs) <laughs> because the AICPA had actually copyrighted all the auditing standards, so there was a lot of stuff they had to negotiate. But when when they started that, the intent was, and, and Chair Gensler made this pretty clear, at the time this happened, he was on the staff of Senator Sarbanes, and the idea here was that those would be fairly quickly improved and replaced, and that hasn't happened. So in the speech that he gave about SOX earlier in the summer, he commented on that. And actually, well before then, we actually wrote about it in the um, previous newsletter. The mm-hmm. updated agenda includes updates to many of those interim standards. So we're going to see some changes there. And, and that kind of blends to the standard that has been adopted by the PCAOB and has been formally approved by the SEC that deals with the use of other auditors. And it's a great example. I mean, that's old gas. The, the, the existing auditing standard is one that I used when I was an auditor when we used auditors from another firm for a subsidiary in Canada. And, and I was the manager on the engagement, and, you know, we had all kinds of... It's the same old stuff. The yeah. world has changed a lot since then. And when you think mm-hmm. about the International Organization of Accountants, I mean, at, at RSM, Chris, you guys are a U.S. firm with affiliates in other parts of the world. That's right. And you need to kind of oversee those affiliates. It's not just there's a firm with a different name. And the oversight process, particularly as audit processes have changed and evolved, needed to change and evolve. So the mm-hmm. new standard requires that lead auditors, and I'll quote, sufficiently plan, supervise, and evaluate the work of other auditors. And what it really does is align the standard with the board's evolving risk-based 
auditing mm -hmm. standards. And then there are quality control things on top of that. This is stuff that I think needs to happen just to kind of make things more modern. A lot yeah. of complicated things going on here. You know, if you're a multinational firm and you're working with one of your affiliates, do you trust the, uh, the quality control standards of the affiliates? Mm -hmm. how, how much do you need to kick the tires? But you look at some of the things that are going on in the enforcement world, both at the PCAOB and the SEC. Yeah, I'd agree, George. And, and the issue for those who aren't as well-versed in using other auditors is really about reliance and responsibility. When there's a firm in a foreign country or in, a, in another, another part of the world providing some portion of the audit testing work papers, any of the work that needs to be done, does the U.S.-based firm that is overseeing the global audit of the company have responsibility for that auditor's work, and can they rely on that? And that's what, George, you were just mentioning around, you know, the control systems of the audit firm and, and the way that they do their work. And sometimes it's pretty straightforward, right? For, for certain firms that are organized, you know, kind of globally, it can be very easy to apply the same methodologies in, in planning and development and execution of the audit. But in others where you've got an, an affiliate firm that maybe no one at that firm has English as a, as a native language, right? You're dealing with folks who, who have grown up in a different business environment and a different language linguistic environment, those issues then come into, okay, when we're testing an audit, when we're performing an audit test, we're looking for A, B, and C. Do those mean the same thing to the entire audit team? And can we rely on them the same way we would in Georgia, the state, as we would Georgia, the country? And that can be where, where some of these things come into, come into issue for audit firms or just for the administration of the audit generally. The closer we can get to a meaningful and unified standard around those treatments, I think is going to be better. Of course, George, there'll always be a spectrum of responsibility and reliance and in each case for, for the individual audits and the operations of that business. Uh, but, if, but if the PCOB can lead from the front in terms of how that should, should be aligned, I think we'll be in a better place, like you said. Completely agree. Completely agree. You know, it's interesting, George, I, I think you maybe hit the nail on the head. You said that, that these are efforts to make some of the rules or standards more modern. And, you know, for, for folks who listen to this podcast, of course, you'll remember that that was a buzzword for a while with all the SEC's rulemaking. Every new rule that came out, it felt like was was modernizing Modernized. something. Right. Sure. <laughs> I mean, is that is that maybe where we are at the PCAOB right now? Are they taking a similar attack and just trying to to modernize some standards that maybe need an update? I think that is an astute observation, particularly from counsel. <laughs> when I was an auditor, we used to send audit confirmations for things like accounts receivable. So we would make a statistical selection, sometimes a judgment selection, from the company's accounts receivable, literally type letters, or when we got more sophisticated, use computer programs to print audit confirmations. We would mail those, and literally, we would require that they stay in control of the auditor all the way to the mailbox. And I can still remember having a big box of accounts receivable confirmations for one of our larger clients here in the Twin Cities, big agribusiness called Cargill and for one of their divisions and seeing the look of dismay on the clerk at the post office when I showed up <laughs> with this huge box yeah. of letters to be mailed. But how, who mails letters today? I mean, let's right. be realistic and who responds to written response. So one of the things that needs to be modernized is how you rely on confirmations. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And how trustworthy is a confirmation? I mean, I used to remember, I remember calling the bank to have them make corrections to standard bank confirmations because they put the wrong information on there. Those are things that have evolved more quickly in a virtual environment. And I think it does need to be modernized. And that's one of the things they've worked on. So that's a great observation. Yeah, it's kind of bring auditing standards out from the 20th century to the 21st century. Well, George Wilson, it is always a pleasure to have you here, not only for your insights and your research, but also because you are always bringing the noise. I'll tell our listeners out there that George is currently wearing a shirt that has a picture of the famous yin and yang sign, but instead of yin and yang, you have DR and CR debits and credits representing the total picture of our accounting and finance world. So George, we love having you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both again. I love being here and talking and just just learning together. And can't recommend enough. Listen to all the episodes. Your summer school was great. I'm excited to hear what happens in the fall. And anybody who would like to learn more about the one-hour briefings and other programs we're doing, you can find them at the SEC Institute webpage at pli.edu. We are a not-for-profit, learning-focused organization, as the intro says. Always glad to take questions. Reach out, email, call anytime. Thanks so much, George. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson of the SEC Institute at PLI. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.